Good morning, I'm Chris Williams, and this is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. Today on the show, we're talking about a new novel called The Glass Kitchen. It's the story of a woman who moves from Texas to New York after a bitter divorce and has to remake her life in New York City with her two sisters. Along the way, she falls in love and decides to open a restaurant reminiscent of the one her grandmother ran in Texas called The Glass Kitchen. It's a story about starting over and finding yourself and finding your passion in life. I'm joined in the studio by author Linda Francis Lee and Fordham University Shakespeare professor Mary Bly. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you. Linda, we're going to be talking about your new novel today. So I want to start out by asking you, for people who might not be familiar with your work, how would you describe the novel? I'd say it's a novel about a woman who's fleeing Texas in a storm of betrayal and ends up shipwrecked on the island of Manhattan. So that's my favorite part about it. Sort of a reverse echo of The Tempest. When did you get into writing? How long have you been writing? I started doing, after I graduated from college, I started doing a bunch of different things that I thought I couldn't do. And writing was one of them. But I'd always had stories in my head. And so I started putting them down on paper. Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing my first book, which was a romance novel and still one of my favorite. And had a book, sent it in, and it, it sold. And so The Glass Kitchen, what number novel is that for you overall now? 21. Is it, is it still hard after all that time, after writing so many books? Is it still hard to, to write them? I think it's... It's trying to stay fresh and come up with new ideas and then make sure that I'm not doing the same thing over and over again. But once I have the idea, then it's so fun to just dive in and just write. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask, how, how did the two of you meet? How do you know each other? Well, I met Linda years ago at a writer's conference when I had been asked to introduce her panels, I remember. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it was a workshop she was giving. And I remember going in, I introduced your panel, and then she turned to me and said, you can leave now. <laughs> and I thought, well, I asked to introduce this panel for a reason, because I wanted to stay. And uh, then I ended up staying, and we became friends. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it was more that sense of having Eloisa James in my panel and listening to it. And like, oh my, it was, I think, probably the first panel I'd ever given. And or spoken, that first sort of workshop. So yeah, I was like, oh my gosh. I thought I would just have like a few people that I could talk to. And then I was, so the pressure was on. But again, it went well and we did, we became friends from there. So can you tell me about the Lucky Duck Club? Oh, we have so much fun with Lucky Duck Club. We have the Lucky Duck Club because there was one very bad day when my editor explained to me that I had to cut 142 pages out of my book. And so, of course, I headed to a wine bar (laughs) where Linda was waiting for me, and she had a little Swarovski crystal duck. And she said, you know, she gave it to me as a present. And then we drank a lot. (laughs) And it was fun. It was fun. And we figured out how to replot the book. I mean, we replotted that entire book. Yep. We replotted the whole book, switched the entire heroine And I left knowing what to do, because when you get that kind of instruction, it's really terrifying. Like, this book is not working. Make it work. And plotting really helps that. So at that point, we decided we'd start the Lucky Duck Club, because we both get sent a lot of books for review. Um, Publishers tend to take, you know, once you've hit the New York Times, they're going to send you all their new novels. And we decided we could just send them out to readers and make them all Lucky Ducks. 
so we do that. Well, it's a great way in in terms of talking to the publishers. It's a, everyone's looking for ways to get books into readers' hands. And what we found is that people, one, love the idea of being lucky. And there's something about a lucky duck and a crystal lucky duck. And people are looking to see what books are we going to tell readers about next. So it's been really exciting, a great way to get books into people's hands, get them noticed and just having that sense of, I mean, who doesn't want a lucky duck? So in addition to counting how many revisions it takes to write a novel, do you also uh. count how many bottles of wine it takes? <laughs> Feels like that. that. <laughs> that'd be hard to do. <laughs> but I will, in fact, I will say that, so through starting with, sort of with the lucky duck night, and then we would talk and sort of regularly talk about our books and plots and and so, and I will say that The Glass Kitchen came out of so many conversations because Mary Bly, as you know, is a professor. So we were talking so much about Shakespeare. And I had this woman who is, had this, you know, storm in Texas, and she ends up on the island of Manhattan. And, and I wasn't thinking about those specifically. But what I was thinking about was the fact that I love the idea that Manhattan is an island. You can only get here through bridges and tunnels. And so the idea then through talking and talking about all the different Shakespearean plays, and it came, it's like, oh my gosh, this is The Tempest, you know, the very beginnings of it. So then it was like, okay, who can Ariel be and who can Miranda be? And we went from there. But I think it's one of those things where you don't always realize what you're writing. Because I distinctly remember that conversation. I said, you're writing The Tempest, right? <laughs> she's got her grandmother's cookbook. She's got books. You know, Prospero had, well, in his case, magic books that he was throwing away. But they were very important books to him. He was on an island. You know, he was shipwrecked. He had left one life for a new life. And you, she had an aerial figure. I mean, she was essentially writing The Tempest without having mm -hmm. thought about it. So sometimes, you know, a Shakespeare professor can come along and say, oh, <laughs> <laughs> look what you have. Look, Shakespeare's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, and I will say that that whole idea that then as we were talking, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is an, a reverse echo in Prospero having to drown his books, whereas in a woman in a women's fiction novel, it's like sometimes you have to accept the things about yourself that are harder to accept, embrace them versus drowning them in order to live a more real, fully realized life. And that was, I think, very exciting to talk about mm -hmm. and then write about. So Mary, for listeners who might not be too familiar with The Tempest, can you just talk about some of the major themes? The Tempest is one of Shakespeare's last plays, and it really interests Shakespeareans because it's one of the plays for which we don't have a source. Most of our plays, he was actually taking Hamlet and rewriting it into his Hamlet. That's not true for The Tempest. And what it involves is an aging magician who was a king who was exiled onto an island with his daughter and his magic books. And he, he takes control of the island, and when his daughter reaches marriageable age, he, he essentially manipulates events so that his usurping brother and a possible fiancé for his daughter and everyone arrives on the island in a tremendous storm and he's using his magical servants to make things happen. But one of the wonderful things is about the power of the imagination. The whole play is about how powerful Prospero is in creating magic essentially on the stage. So a lot of people think that is Shakespeare's farewell to the to the um to the profession in a sense because in the end prospero throws his books into the sea and says goodbye to them and you know as you may or may not know shakespeare retired essentially left the stage at the height of his popularity and went off and farmed sheep so 
It's interesting to think of that. We don't like to go into biographical criticism very much, but it's hard not to with the Tempest to think there's an echo of his own thought process and that I have created magic. It's, a, in a sense, a very arrogant play, if you think of it that way. Linda, sort of translating that into the glass kitchen, the main character, Portia, she has this knowing, as you write, and it's sort of this supernatural element. She'll just knowingly cook something and then predicting the future almost, right? It is a book about sort of these sort of magic cookbooks. It's more that it's filled with wisdom and uh, folk wisdom and recipes, sort of healing. And so that's sort of the magic of what food can bring to the table. So the idea that she is is there t- trying to t- trust her gut, and we everyone talks about you need to trust your gut, but it's hard to do. So the book is really about her learning to trust her gut, trust her instincts, and be able to create a, a family within these people that she has met on this island. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the major arc of the novel, too, is, is she's sort of not trusting it at first and, and wanting to throw it away and not wanting to rely on it. But then, like, eventually she'll comes to realize that, oh, that's... I have to. Well, I think that that's why as we were, when we were discussing, when we were plotting that idea that it's the reverse echo. Prospero, Prospero wanted his books. He was so reliant on his books and his magic. Whereas she, in the very beginning, is quite the opposite. She does not want to accept the books. She doesn't want to accept the magic. And she's pushing them away. And But they're so much a part of her. And how can she take this because she doesn't like the idea that she will create food that means something and she has no idea what it means. The meaning will come later. It's almost like looking in a crystal ball at some sense, but not knowing what it means. Mm-hmm. And she hated that. I was I was actually a bit surprised reading the novel about the sort of magical realism in it. Is that something that you do in your other novels or is this like a departure for you for this novel? My last book, Emily and Einstein, it had a little bit of magic well it definitely had magical realism as well it was and i enjoyed that quite a bit it was you know about a dog of a man who then has to reform himself as a dog and i love the idea of that just beyond what we can see that there's something else entirely if you believe and i just enjoyed exploring that in both emily and einstein and then in the glass kitchen This is Chris Williams on WFUV 90.7, and this is Fordham Conversations. We're talking about the new novel, The Glass Kitchen, with author Linda Francis Lee and Fordham University professor Mary Bly. This question is really for both of you. I was just wondering, when you come up with ideas for novels, do they start out as a specific scene that you have in mind and sort of then build around it? Or is it, do you come up with it more in a broad stroke of, oh, I want to tell this story from start to finish and then sort of fill in the details from there. We write in very different genres. And I think that's, I mean, I write historical romance and Linda really writes what people call proper novels, women's fiction, they come out in hardcover and minor mass market. So I think our ways of approaching the initial novel idea are quite different because for me, I'm often thinking what kind of emotion I want to create, what's going to be the emotional intensity What's going to be the most intense moment in this? Because uh, mass market has got to be a page turner. So you're trying to figure out what is going to make the reader unable to put down the book. Whereas Linda's ideas, from what I've seen, are much more philosophical. She'll think very deeply and for a long time, for two years, about 
about um, the various ideas she wants to shape and their relevancy to the lives of the women she's depicting. Whereas I don't really worry too much about philosophy. I'm sort of more like, ah, I think I really feel like writing about, you know, uh, a husband who kicks his wife out and moves a mistress in, and, you know, <laughs> just that kind of thing. <laughs> Which could <laughs> also be a women's uh, fiction novel. Yeah, uh, not really. <laughs> but I have a lot of fun. My books are, are light and fun. They're escapism. And Linda's are also a lot of fun, but of course they're much more, they have much more substantial and serious, and they take two years to write. So I think your approach is probably quite different than mine. Well, I, I do. It's generally, it is. There's something I want to explore. And then how to take what I want to explore and then just start building a puzzle around it and all the pieces that go into bringing that to fruition. And in The Glass Kitchen, it was really about, for me, it, it really started initially by the idea of these three sisters and a bond. But then as it really started morphing, it was very quickly after that that I saw that it wasn't as much about just the sisters as it was because all three sisters end up on the island but Portia comes through the storm to get here and but I really did I wanted to really uh, explore the sisters I wanted to explore somebody the, the man upstairs and then he has two daughters he has lost his wife and suddenly this very strong man is a single father and hasn't the first clue how to be a father really and it was so everyone has to learn something through the book you know, I really kind of explored what could she do. And at the same time that I was exploring what could she do, I was doing a lot of, actually, I would say first I was going to a lot of dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> Mary has a wonderful dinner parties. We have our friends who, uh, that we have sort of a group, this group of friends, and everyone cooks these wonderful meals. And it reminded me not only of coming to New York and how you create family out of, friends. But it also made me think back to when I lived in Texas. I'm born and raised in Texas. My whole family's still there. And I thought about growing up in those dinner parties in Texas. And it forced me back into the kitchen because, one, I had to then reciprocate <laughs> with dinner parties. But then also starting to think about food and family. And so I realized Portia really needed to be somebody who cooks. This is actually a publishing question. And I know you mentioned it earlier, but I noticed the book's being published in hardcover. And I know it's a lot harder to get a book published hardcover nowadays. I was writing romance, which I love mm -hmm. immensely. And then I had I wrote a book called The Devil in the Junior League, which was just a bigger book and a bigger idea. And so then my contract became first to be published in hardcover. And I think it has to do with the idea and it's beneficial for the publisher to publish in hardcover. I also think there's a difference in, in the buyer. So a person who's going to pay a certain amount of money for a hardcover, you know, twenty two ninety five or 26 they want a book that's taken someone two years to write that, that has that depth, I think, of thought where you might have a book club reading it together. You might share it with your mother and talk about it. You, you know, I, I think it needs a writer who is who has Linda's talent to be able to get people to read it and then want to talk about it and think about it. And those are the people who are going to continue to have a hardcover contract even these days. For someone like me, my books really are mass market. I mean, I started out in hardcover and I actually bought back my hardcover contract and went into mass market because my audience reads a tremendous amount and they are 
often feeling like escaping from their normal life, whether it's because they're in cancer treatment at that moment, and then they will, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not reading sort of Dostoevsky at some point, but they may not be this month. And so I think my audience would rather not pay $26. They'd rather pay six ninety nine and and read four books for the same mm-hmm. amount. The main character in The Glass Kitchen, she moves from Texas to New York. And I was just wondering how much of your own personal experience moving from the South to the city is reflected in that story. I think that at some level, there's, I, I've been in New York for since 98, in the Northeast since 90. So I have been up here actually probably longer than I was in Texas. Though my family's still there, we always go back. But I think that at some level, I see it differently both Texas now and also New York because I am sort of an outsider and quite frankly I'm sort of an outsider in Texas at this point but an outsider looking in so I I bring a certain sensibility to the books but I really I think of myself as an observer more than really engaging in sort of the the feelings and the beliefs of perhaps either place because mm-hmm. I noticed that there are a lot of instances in the novel where you sort of compare contrast. You know, there's one point where um, Portia and her sisters are, you know, trying to just let people see what the glass kitchen is going to be like. And they're inviting people in. And there's one woman and she's like, oh, I don't know. And then the characters are like, oh, don't worry. We're not, you know, we're from Texas. We're crazy, but we're not dangerous. <laughs> and I think, you know, there is that New Yorker sort of skepticism like, oh, I shouldn't go in here, you know. But when we first got up here, it was really hard for me to adjust because I had to talk to everybody. I mean, I just and you're in in Texas, you talk to everybody, but you don't have so many people all around you. You're, you're in a car, and here, <laughs> you know, you in an elevator and five people in there, and I feel like I have to talk to them all. <laughs> I bet that didn't last very long. <laughs> well, oddly enough, on the first building that we lived in, you got the, to know everyone, <laughs> and everybody knew me just because I would talk to everybody. But you slowly, it, it sort of. It's not beaten out of you, but, you know, you start realizing that you just sort of in order to have any sense of privacy, you have to create a barrier between all the people who are right right next to you. Otherwise, you would be talking to people all the time. And in fact, today, coming down the elevator, new building, all these years later, and I, uh, I stop and some man gets on, a lovely older gentleman who has just moved to New York City. And I was just so stunned because I'm just minding my own business. And he just started talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's not from here. (laughs) He will be. (laughs) (laughs) He he wanted directions. And and it was happy to give it to him. It was just funny that I thought it's been so long since somebody's talked to me in an elevator. I wonder if that isn't part of the novelist in you that's always the observer. Now, I'm not sure that a novelist can afford to be deeply a participant in a dinner party in order to create a dinner party later in a book. You have to be watching. You have to right? be watching it, not participating so much. Well, to some it, extent, yeah. 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 Oh, I know. That's, I, that is one of my, I do, I love to sit back in a group of people and allow them to talk so that I can just absorb and really understand and, it, and sort of read the situation. I think you do have to observe in order to write that kind of novel that that sort of mirror life or have a philosophical take on life. When you have, you have so much of what you do, you are teaching all the time, you know, that's your job. I mean, it's your first love 
Yeah. No, I'm mostly and, a Shakespearean. So. Yeah. And so it's in when we, we do, we, you know, we go places and you have so much to give people and they are so excited to get it. And I love to watch it. If you once a teacher, always a teacher, you know. Mary, I got to ask you, would you ever do something similar to what Linda's done here where you sort of take the structure of a Shakespearean work and sort of reimagine it? Is that something that would interest you? I did it with one romance. I I was reimagining Romeo and Juliet's relationship if they'd actually got married because they were, of course, incredibly young, and I'm convinced it would have been a very bad marriage. So I wrote a fun romance. I had a lot of fun writing Once Upon a Tower, which they get married in. It's a disaster, utter disaster. But I, I know I don't have a literary bend, so I wouldn't you know want to rewrite a play in a serious way like that. So in the novel, Portia starts cooking, and you write that suddenly her world makes sense. And I'm just wondering if if that's is is that how you feel about writing? My two loves would be writing and running, and I do feel most that I'm sort of uh, that I'm in my element when I'm writing and when I'm running. But just as with writing, there it's not that it's easy at all, and a lot of times it's extremely hard. And there are those times when I just it's like you want to want to put up and just like oh I can't do this but then you can't not do it and so then when you dive back in it's that feeling of rightness and so for her she has been resisting cooking for so long three years and then it just she just can't not do it anymore and she's afraid to do it she doesn't want to do it but it's just the draw and then once she starts it's almost like she can breathe I want to hear more about these dinner parties and whether or not oh, so great. how they influence the novel, um, because the novel's filled with descriptions of delicious sounding food. And I was just wondering, you know, where'd that come from? Are you do you like to cook? I have been known. To, just, I can dial with the best of them. In New York, <laughs> you can order anything. But and she does. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm so bad. But what, so what happened was because of all these dinner parties, I really did have to get back in the kitchen. Oh, my gosh. And I used to cook and then I had sort of stopped. But then my first d- diving back in, I was just, oh, it was a disaster. Burned, burned everything, burned the pan, threw the pan away. I had to start over. I mean, I literally threw the pan away. It was so burned. But then slowly getting back into it. And it was just such a great feeling. But I think the first dinner party that really started making me think about the food was at an Easter dinner at Mary and Alessandro's house. And it was just this long table, and but all these other people, all professors, and it was just so fascinating, this sense of almost cobbling together family over an Easter meal because everyone was from someplace else. I think one of the things about going to graduate school and becoming a professor is you learn how to cook because you have no money whatsoever. So my dinner party started in graduate school, and I have I got some cookbooks, and I just my mother was a terrible cook, so there was nothing, no advice coming from that side. But I I figured out how to cook by actually reading these cookbooks because I couldn't eat the way I would like to eat, which was basically just edible food, because Alessandra and I were just we were very young and just together then we had no money and we had student loans. So we both learned how to cook. His, his mother's Italian. She lives in Florence, Italy. He had watched her cook, but he actually, you know, went back and said, all right, show me how to make pomerola sauce. Show me how to make this. And we learned how to cook kind of together at sort of the same time. My mother had dinner parties, and it was so, I loved watching, putting all the food together, and 
being in Texas in the summer, I'm from the desert in Texas, so at night it actually cools off, even in the heat of summer. So you could have summer dinner parties outside. It, I just remember it was just such a wonderful feeling, all of that, all that food. I think there's something about food and how that brings people together. So the novel's divided up sort of in sections, appetizer, first course, second course, etc. And then at the end of the novel, there's a bunch of recipes corresponding to those courses. Did you come up with those recipes? Yes, I had what that was um, through all of these different meals, things that either I'd already had that I loved. What I what I did was I then said, what how would Portia make them? So give a Portia's twist on all these different things. So uh, it was really getting in the kitchen and creating Portia's versions of these of of these recipes. So I was making them and then I would write about them. But then right before they, as the, after the manuscript was accepted, they're going into publication or all that pre-pub stuff. So they then came back to me. They said, we want you to give us the recipes and we'll publish them in the book. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got to write these down in a way that people can actually recreate them and not poison themselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and they needed them like on Monday. So over the weekend, so I have to cook them all. I mean, and they're really wonderful recipes, but... This is sort of a meal, a very, very special meal. It's also a high-calorie meal. <laughs> so I made that whole thing, and it was just, it was really delicious, but it was hugely filling. And on Monday morning, I'm like, here, I'm never cooking again. <laughs> or eating again, quite frankly. Was that the reason why the dessert is watermelon yes, rather than cake? Yes, by the time cake? you get to that point. <laughs> and really and truly, by the time we got to that, because I had, there's, uh, in the book, there's that strawberry pie. Mm. And I thought... By the time you've eaten this meal, you really just have to have watermelon. And watermelon and played a part in the book. So I thought, oh, that's so perfect. Since both of you are writers, I'm assuming the next project is already in progress. I was just wondering if you could talk about what, what's next for both of you. Well, I'm writing a book. I just published a book um, in the spring called Three Weeks of Lady X, which was a book about a woman who renovates houses and she has three weeks to renovate a house set in the Regency period. So it was fun. I got to learn about the price of a pound of chocolate in 1700s and how much it cost to get silk stockings for footmen and things like that. So since that was three weeks, I'm now writing Four Nights with a Duke and that will come out in a year. So I, I basically publish one book a year. So I'm working on that and I'm kind of finishing it up right now. So I'm working on the next book that will come out next summer. And I definitely a mother-daughter book want to explore. What I see is two women who are out on a beach, but it has nothing to do with then the beach. It was more that sense of going back to roots and how you feel when you're on a beach and that sense of sort of, I guess I must have a recurring theme of that. What is it that makes you feel like you can breathe? While you're writing your next novel, I know you're going away to London, but is there going to be time for you to get together and have some wine to talk it out? I can't imagine what I'm going to do when she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I told her, London awaits, right? That's the great thing about being a novelist. She can come to London and she can give her give, give your mother and daughter a little celebratory trip <laughs> to Harrods and then we will go to tea and take it all off our taxes. No. But anyway, I mean, a writers can write anywhere. So I'm going to be running the Fordham program in London for undergraduates and teaching Shakespeare in London, and I'm hoping to have Linda as my guest. And I am determined to go. 
appreciate you having me. Oh, this has of been course. so fun to talk about the glass kitchen and also Mary's books. I mean, all the the romances and this. I think for me, it's that combination of being able to read and write romance and also women's fiction. And there is so much in both of those bo- types of books that speak to women and help them with their own lives. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself returning to writing romance novels? I like. I think that for me, it's always my goal has always been to do both. And no way you're going to write literary fiction. I wrote a memoir. <laughs> That's the way it sounded. <laughs> I wrote a memoir called Paris in Love, but no, I don't. Um, you know, I come from a very literary family, and I have a strong feeling about the difference between them. And I have to say. I teach Shakespeare, so when I'm writing, I like to just be writing something that's really easy. It's easy for me, and it's easy to read, and it's it's not fair to say it's easy, but but it's just fun as opposed to my as opposed to teaching. It's not always fun, I'm afraid. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Thank you for having us. Glass Kitchen by Linda Francis Lee is now available from St. Martin's Press. For more information about Linda's books, visit lindaleebooks.com. And for more information about Mary Bly, who writes romance novels under the pen name Eloisa James, visit eloisajames.com. been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. You can hear our show every Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed the show. They're all available to stream at WFUV.org. You can also download our podcast, like our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter for more updates about our upcoming shows. Stay tuned. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.